Welcome to Off Book, a podcast from the Young Vic, where we have conversations with creatives who have recently inspired us with their work here. I am Dan Delamotte, and I'm so excited to be joined by Kwame Kweyama, the artistic director of the Young Vic. Thank you so much for coming to Off Book, Kwame. Um, I'm only here because of you. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what we've got time for. So, do you want to say uh, so Kwame, I've got to be honest, right? So, out of everybody that we've had in this tiny booth for uh-huh. Off Book, you are probably the most interviewed person that we've ever had. Um, I'm which, not sure whether that's an insult. Or, <laughs> which means you're overexposed, darling. Okay. Uh, no, what it means is, is you've even been on Desert Island Discs, Indeed. which kind of knocks my nose out of joint because normally how these podcasts work is it's a little bit like that, that we sort of talk about what's gone on, where you've been, where you've come from and where you're going. But because people have heard that from you, I right. think instead of doing the past, we're going we're gonna to focus on, on the present and the future. Good. Because um, you've already spoken so eloquently about your mother, for instance, about Indeed. the inspiration that she was to you and, and how she's sort of guided you to, to where you are today. So instead of that, we're going to talk about this place, Good. the Young Vic. Good. Um, do you feel at home yet? Are you home? Yes. Um, rather weirdly, I felt at home really, really quickly. And I remember saying to my wife about three weeks in, I was, or maybe not, maybe it was a month in, I was like, it feels really natural getting off the train or tube at Suffolk and then walking into work and then coming in to and, and sitting at my desk. And I wonder if I'm just not being over complacent because it shouldn't feel um, it, it shouldn't feel this comfortable this early. And so I, I challenge myself about it often. I, I often think, are you too comfortable? Is that is that a worry then that perhaps it's not good to be that comfortable? Uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, maybe it's just says something about about my psychological state, <laughs> right? That that, that I, I'm I I think I think I'm slightly wary of being too comfortable in in any space, um, possibly um, for fear that if it's taken away, that um, that then you you just don't miss it, and and that maybe or maybe you would miss it if you're too comfortable. So yeah, I'm a bit wary of being over comfortable um, because I always want to be on my A game. Were you this comfortable in Baltimore, for instance? Yeah, 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 I was. I was. I mean, and that was what I had it to compare against, that walking into my office in Baltimore, I'd sit and I'd be like, yo. And actually, that's a very good question because um, I built, um, you know, the, the theatre in my image. That's what you do as an AD. The new staff that come in, they come for you and the institution. The the way of working is, you know, is lent towards how you work and 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 how you create your the best work for you. And 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 so I, in in a weird way, feeling really comfortable really soon, bearing in mind that the theatre is not yet in a, in my image, that it that it is David's theatre, quintessentially from the staff that they hear to the reputation of the theatre. I think that's probably why I worried. I was like, why are you so comfortable? You should be frightened every day. Now, last week you were on Radio 4, Kel Surprise, uh, <laughs> talking about um, Twelfth Night, and I listened to that, and there was something which was really striking for me, mm-hmm. which is that you quoted Tony Benn. Well, you didn't quote Tony, but you, you mentioned Tony Benn, and you said that Tony Benn was this sort of agitator mm. who sort of always had a twinkle in his eye, yes. that you that he was kind of always wanted to make change happen, but he wanted to have fun with it. Yes. And that's the same for you, is that right? I, I think so. I, I, I think, I, I don't quite understand, um, I don't quite understand people who are really deeply political, who um, who, who kind of don't enjoy the, the, the cut and thrust of interacting with other people and trying to get people to see a different 
a, a different slice of life or a different angle on something. I, I love people. I love I love interacting. I love I love playing. I love being playful. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm political, but I'm political because I care about people, because I like people, because I like playing with people. And so, yeah, having a twinkle, is, uh, it, it, I, that is something that, that I would love about Tony Bennett or Malcolm X, for instance. When Malcolm X was saying really fiery things, you'd see a little twinkle in the back of his eye as he kind of dropped a nugget. And it was fun because he knew that it would either make you combust or make you fall to your knees and, and, and pray. And, uh, and I, 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 I like that kind of oratory. I like that kind of political activism. Well, did you know that Tony Benn put up a five-point plan on power, which I'm now going to ask you, Kwame. No, I didn't. Tony, that's why I was so fascinated that you mentioned him, because Tony Benn has five questions to power, wow. which I'm now going to ask you. Right. I'm ready. <laughs> so Tony Benn said, what power do you have? And I'm going to ask that to you. What power do I have? Um, I, I, I think I have the power of, on a, in, in, in terms of a job, I'm a gatekeeper. Um, I, I'm a curator to a to an established uh, and, um, and and powerful artistic venue. Um, so I think I have that power. I think I have the power of love. I inherited that from my mother. Her heart was so large, and she gave me so much love that it that it enlarged my heart. Um, I think I have the power of family, um, of family support, and love. Um, and I have the power of health. I think those are the ones that jump out at me. And where did you get those powers from? Um, I got the power from being the artistic director of the Young Vic from the board who appointed me. Um, I got the power of love, I think, from my mum and from um, my family and from, and from people whose political aspirations and, and dedication. Um, have shaped my life and, and and allowed me to stand on their shoulders, um, and I think, I yeah, I think those are that's where I've, I've been. I've got those power, where those powers have come from. I think. And in whose interests do you um, exercise those powers? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like to. Uh, I, I think, and again, I'm I'm, I'm thinking about this because I don't think you can just like, spit it out. But I think, I believe in community. I believe in people. I believe in people power and I believe in equality. And so whatever powers I have, certainly in terms of being a gatekeeper and curating, I exercise that in the name of the people. Um, <clears throat> in terms of love, I exercise that in the name of um, in, in the name of goodness, in the name of um, wanting to live in a world where you do the thing that you would have other people do unto you, which is give you love and give you respect. It doesn't mean that people can't be hard on you, but it does mean that they give you those things. I think, and and, and ultimately, I do it for my for my family, for my for my children. No, that's not ultimately, but ultimately, I do it for myself. I do it because um, I wish to be the change that I want to see in the world, and I wish to challenge myself to be the best that I can be. And so um, I exercise all of those things in, in the name of fulfilling my potential. And if I fulfill my potential, hopefully I can affect the lives of others that are around me, be that in a small number or a large number. And to who are you accountable? Wow. To who am I accountable? <clears throat> um, I mean, again, I'm accountable, of course, to my board as a curator of the Young Vic. Um, 
Uh, but but ultimately, I, I think I'm accountable to my soul. I think my soul um, is is the repository of 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 potential, of purpose, and fulfilling my potential and fulfilling my purpose is part of the the thing I perceive I was put here to do. And so ultimately, I think I'm responsible to my soul. And whether one believes in anything religious or not, I describe myself as a as a spiritual person far more than I do religious. But but also to the creator, um, who who I perceive, and the reason I believe in things like that is because I believe in. Um, I, I I just don't think everything that I do comes from me. <laughs> I just don't think that that I'm responsible for many of the good things that have happened in my life. I just don't think I'm responsible solely for many of the bad things that have happened or for the world. And so I happen to believe in 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 what some would call God, what I might call the all. I happen to believe in that stuff. And so ultimately I think I'm responsible to 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 that being however one wants to frame it. And the final question that Tony Benn would have asked you if he was sat in this room instead of me is how can we get rid of you? <laughs> <laughs> how can you get rid of me? By um how can you get rid of me? By, by, by rendering my ambitions for society redundant. When there is equality, when there is love as a default position, not hate or criticism, when there are narratives that support uh, not just supremacies of one culture, but, but truths of all, yeah. I don't know what I'll talk about. What a fantastic answer. That was brilliant. But Kwame, let's talk about what's happening in the building now then. With mm-hmm. Twelfth Night, you chose to start your season with that. What was it about that production that you wanted to bring here? I wanted to bring three things. Joy, love and community. It felt like the perfect piece to do that with. <clears throat> Colour and vibrancy is one thing, but, but, to, send, um, but to send joy out into the world it's a it's a it's a political act and i'm deeply political my politics are you know racial gender environmental and and all of those things coalesced around love and joy and um and and i i wanted that to be my opening statement <laughs> many people thought and I, I, i've heard it said oh i thought you'd do like a really hard-hitting black political play blah blah, blah. and i said you know, to that I say I am. It just happens to be Twelfth Night with beautiful R&B black-based music, with a diverse cast, with a diverse audience, celebrating being yourself. And it's a journey I've had to take in my life to be comfortable with who I am in any environment that I'm in and not having to put on suits or armors. And I think that's what Viola does. She puts on a, a suit of armor in order to protect herself, in order to survive. And um, and she gets to the end and she says, I don't need to do that anymore. Um, and, and, and so that's the message I wanted to send out. And what about the modernity of the piece? Because it's not, it's not set in, in, in period, is it? Yeah. It's, it's in contemporary Notting Hill. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's a here and now piece. Um, I, and I, when I started thinking about where to set this play, um, you know, Twelfth Night is about a city with music. And um, when we did the production, a previous production in New York, um, it was set in New Orleans around Mardi Gras. And then I went, 
I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it now. And I'm going to set it in Notting Hill because Notting Hill for a weekend in August is is a town of music. Music is allowed to seep out of every corner and every mouth and every body. And so it felt right to do that. And and I also wanted it to set it in multicultural London. Multiculturalism, I know, is a really old word and people don't really like that anymore. But for me, it was really important that Sir Andrew was Russian and that, and that Sir Toby was Welsh and that Mariah was Nigerian. Or, and it was, or, or all of these things in terms of legacy was... and. Uh, and that you know that we had an, an Asian actress playing Olivia, and um, and I just I just love that um that we were able to set it in a in a contemporary setting that said this is London, and let's celebrate the the multifaceted um, dimensions of this great city. Do you go to Notting Hill Carnival? I do. <laughs> I every went year? this year. Every year. Well, actually, um, I didn't. I hadn't been for six years because I'd been in the States, and so my the substitute was to go to the New York Car- Calypso or not Calypso, the New York Carnival, um, and uh, so this was my first year back um, after six, and oh man, I had such a brilliant time. I walked the street with my thirteen-year-old. Um, my other children wouldn't come with me. <laughs> I had to coerce the 13-year-old to do it. But, um, you know, I could walk around and I could show him the spots that when I was a younger man that I would hang out. And uh, no, I, 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 I love carnival. I love the music. I love the people. I love, I love the energy of people congregating to celebrate something. Because that's your neck of the woods, isn't it, West London? Yeah, I was born with, in yeah. Southall. So yeah, yeah. No, no, and my father, when he first came to Britain, moved into Notting Hill. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with that, that neck of the woods. So what's the identity of West London in comparison to other parts of London or South London? I don't know, you know, it's really weird. And I, I, um, I think there was an identity of the town that I grew up in, which is Southall, when I was born and, and when I was young, probably up until I was about eight or nine, I'm told. Uh, but, you know, Southall was probably about 60% Asian or 50% Asian. And then after Idi Amin kicked the Asian community out of Uganda, uh, actually I was away, I was out of the country in Grenada for a while. And when I came back, it, it literally, Southall had, white flight had taken place. And it was literally, and we didn't call it that then, of course. Um, and, and then the era became almost like super majority uh, Asian, over 90, 95%. Um, and, and that was really interesting for me as a West Indian boy of West Indian heritage, uh, living next door to a Sikh and then a Hindu and then a Muslim and actually not understanding their religions because we didn't teach each other's religions in school then, but having to get to know who these families were. And then I was an, an African family at the bottom of my street and four up was an Irish family. And actually the Irish kids were there. There was two, um, Jamie and, oh God, I can't remember Jamie's brother's name, Alan, I think. And, um, <laughs> And, uh, and they were my mates. They were like my best mates. And so it was a really, uh, and again, we overuse the word diverse, but it was, um, it was a really interesting area to grow up in with a really strong identity because we knew that the kind of um, surrounding areas to the north, east, south, and the west were, it was where really white flight had resided. People had left Southall and then gone into those areas with resentment. And so they became really dangerous areas to... Uh, to, to walk through, drive through, or even get on a bus through, that one felt that one's life was always um, in danger. Um, and, and so really, Southall had a really clear identity for me. I don't know if I know, I don't know, I don't know if I could define a West London, but certainly uh, Southall. And growing up in Southall, did you feel safe, or were you aware of this kind of resentment to multiculturalism and, and this feeling of 
of otherness. I felt really safe in my house. My house was a beautiful home, um, filled with love, music, and argument and and debate. Um, I, I felt relatively safe in Southall because um, you know because um, people of colour were in the majority. I felt dangerously uh, um, exposed the moment I left Southall for exactly the reasons that you've articulated. As um, you know, there, it, it, you know, we were all chased or stabbed or or, or beaten. You know, I, I don't know a cousin or a family member who wasn't. I mean, there were really, there was a really hard, hard, ice cold times. And how does that compare to the multiculturalism and diversity of Baltimore, for instance? When you went there, was it the same kind of social makeup or, or not? Well, actually, that was really interesting because. Um, you know, I, I I moved to a to a city that was between sixty five and seventy percent African American, and uh, and to live in a majority, you know, environment was really interesting. However, the area that I lived in, the school that my son went to, but it was not that. But um, and the theatre was not that, and so trying to get more of the African American community into the theatre so that the theatre could be as reflective and that's from the staffing through to audience could be more reflective of Baltimore was a really interesting challenge um, and I, I enjoyed I, I enjoyed being part of the community in Baltimore and, and that's not just the black community I enjoyed being a community I, I, really interestingly when I went to America and people kept talking about community um, all I could hear was what was the way that we define community. And we would only define community in terms of the ethnic minority community, the Asian community, the black community, the gay community. Um, but there they, they were using it as as everybody in your in your reach. And I loved being part of 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 a of a way of thinking that said that everyone you can reach or you can touch in whatever fashion is part of your community found that fascinating. And has that informed your work that you make, not only that you direct, but write? Or, tremendously. Yeah. Tremendously. I, I, I went to Baltimore caring about community. I left Baltimore knowing that everything I do is about community. Sidetrack slightly, I'm picturing a scene where in Baltimore you take the family to a restaurant or a cafe or whatever and you order and the waiter or waitress <laughs> goes, what? <laughs> Did <Yeah>. that happen? <laughs> Yeah, it did. It, 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 it happens to every person of colour, of course, that goes to America. Um, what I always found, and this is both black and white, but I'll describe the white reaction, if I may, um, um, that that I perceive that there is a general sense of inferiority for uh, the American to the Brit, right? And um, and a sense of superiority um, from of white to black. And so hearing a black Brit speak would kind of create dissonance. <laughs> they'd be like, they'd be some, uh, particularly at the beginning, people would be staring at my mouth and they'd be like going, do I feel inferior, superior, inferior, superior? And you'd literally see steam coming out of their ears as they couldn't quite compute why um, I, I was using, the, as they would actually say, the King's English. And, um, and, 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 and they had all the outward appearances of an African-American. You could be quite mischievous with that, though, couldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> I, actually, I think nearly everybody is. Nearly every uh, black actor that I know, that in London sounded, you know, they sound like this, and in America sound closer to Prince Charles. I mean, it's just like, like they really take advantage of it. I think I was talking to Copner Holbrook-Smith, who said mm. exactly the, the same thing, actually. Um, was it easy to leave Baltimore? Because I know that you applied for the job 
of artistic director of the Young Vic very late in the day. It wasn't something that you were sort of as soon as David announced his retirement from this job, you were like, oh, my God, let me put my application in. So you were clearly still invested in your time there. Um, you know, I walked back into Baltimore after after doing a play in London, actually. Uh, I mean, in Birmingham. And um, and I walked back into the theatre and we'd just done a 30 million capital campaign and had added two new theatres and the theatre... I mean, it, it really was in my image. You know, it was... We had built this. We had designed this. It was ready to do all of the things that, that, that I said I wanted to do with it. And I walked back in and my heart and my gut said, the moment I walked in, and it went, okay, your work is done here. Similar to that question that Tony Benn says about how do we get rid of you, I yeah. suppose. Yeah. Um, and once, my, once I felt that, I then resigned the next day, um, and I had to, you know, I had to, to, to get to the end of the season, which was uh, probably a year from there. And, um, but uh, I, I, I was really comfortable in my decision, and I just sat in, in, you know, in a position where I didn't know what my next job was going to be. And, uh, and many of my family were afraid for me. They were like, oh, my God, but, you know, you, why would you leave this? You've just rebuilt it. And um, but I, I, I think as an artist, you have to listen to your to your inner voice. You have to listen to your spirit and your you have to listen to your soul and let your spirit lead you. And um, and so I, I love Baltimore and I was invested in Baltimore until the day that I stopped being an artistic director. What was very interesting is I went back to complete my contract, actually, to to direct a show and um, and I was not artistic director at that point and I had a quite a different experience of Baltimore and I couldn't work out for the first week why I felt really odd what was wrong with me and it was that as an artistic director my job was always to look after the community to look after the staff to care about about what we do not just in terms of what's happening on the stage, but how it's being received and what it's contributing to in, in, in the greater world outside of the theatre. And when I was just directing, it felt like I'm, I'm wasting my time. I mean, what, what am I doing here? I'm not serving the community. And so I felt quite bereft. I felt quite empty. I felt, I felt quite... Um, and, so, and it was then that I went, OK, I'm ready to go to London. Because... Um, once you stop being responsible for a community, then you're just making art. And that's great and it's brilliant, but, but, um, but I, I, I want to serve um, more than that. Well, there was a sense in that answer of, of the loneliness that sometimes artists can feel. Do you think it's a lonely profession? It's a lonely thing to do to make art or to be involved in art? I, I think it depends on what you do, but I, I think ultimately, um, and I think one of Tony Benn's questions were, you know, who are you accountable to? And, uh, and as an artist, ultimately, you're accountable to yourself. Yeah, critics review you. Yes, gatekeepers say they'll do your play or not. Yes, people applaud or other people boo. But ultimately, you have to look at yourself and say, have I done the thing that I set out to do? And, um, and, and that's lonely. And so you came back to London. Mm -hmm. Was it the same as how you left it? No. What was different? Brexit. Um, Brexit hit me. It hit me hard. The days after Brexit, I, I, I flew into the country and I was hearing stories of people running up to Asian people, getting up to black people, getting up to Eastern Europeans and saying, go home and screaming at them, you're going to be going back. And that was not the country I left. I thought we had defeated many of those um, instincts 20 years prior. What we had done, I, I then realised, is that we had won the silence 
but we had not won the argument. And that's really hard. Do you think that if there's a danger that if the Remain side had won the referendum, it would be business as usual, status quo, that um, people who had voted Remain, like you and I or whoever else, would have gone, oh, phew, what a narrow escape, <laughs> and just totally continue to ignore the underlying tensions, which is similar to the Trump um, victory in the States, perhaps? Yeah, I, I, I think we would have. The question for me, however, is what would, of those who voted the opposite way, what would they have done? Would they still have just, would they have, was the cat out of the bag by simply having the referendum? You know, could they ever go back to not wanting to discuss how good it would be to not have foreigners in the country on the tax of of people coming in from Eastern Europe who are selling drugs and taking our women? You know, I don't, I don't know. From the moment the referendum um, got ahead of steam, I don't know if we could, whatever happened, whether it had gone right or left, I, 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 I don't know if we could have gone back to who we were. Because who we were was untrue. It wasn't true. We were masquerading. And how does art, or more specifically this theatre, or you, uh, or the community, respond to Brexit? Twelfth Night is a reaction to Brexit. In a moment when we're angsting and wringing our hands and, 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 and in pain about the divorce that's about to happen, and but more importantly, who we'll become after that, and who we are now, um, love and joy was really important to put out straight away. Um, I, I think, however, as curators and gatekeepers, the, things that's, the thing that's most important is that, um, is that we listen and curate and discuss the things that, that we think our audiences will want to discuss. We have to lead as well. Um, and, and I think a lot of that, or a lot of those discussions, will be around identity. And I think theatre is going to have a really big role to play in helping to re-identify um, a, a people with its destiny, with its sense of ID, with its uh, it, its sense of, of of collective endeavour. I think we're going to have to do. We're, we've got a lot of work ahead of us in that way. So is theatre and art at its strongest when it's proactive to what is going on in the world around it or reactive to that world? I think that theatre is most powerful when it is in metaphor. And sometimes metaphor can be pro or pre, right? It can be... Uh, but, the, but I think when theatre is least effective is when it just runs straight at something. Um, something happens today and we're just doing something. Now there is such... Uh, there's great work coming out of rapid response theatre initiatives. But I think when we find the metaphor so that people take themselves there, I think that's when we are at our most powerful. So, for instance, work about the Grenfell tragedy might be better in a couple of years' time rather than in the immediate future. Yeah, I mean, possibly. Um, that Or work now that's about, that takes us to a place that was not Grenfell, but where similar atrocities and crimes against humanity had happened. Actually, finding that play right now, or even last year, um, I, I think that's absolute service. That's absolutely the thing to do. 
Kwame, right at the beginning of this interview, you mentioned the J word, joy. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we've just spoken about Brexit. You were AD in Baltimore when Donald Trump was elected yeah. president. Yeah. Uh, scientists are continually telling us to watch ourselves because of impending climate doom. Yeah. We've got the continued refugee crisis globally. You, you've got a smile on your face now, yeah. but how do you continue to keep that smile there and keep the joy and keep the positivity and optimism in the face of so much that is just terrible? Because... We're trying, right? It's like we're not just sitting there and going, oh, these things are happening and woe is me and and, 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 and guess what? I'm just going to swim with the tide. We're trying. We, you know, we're trying to create, to use the tools that we have at our disposal, art for me, to catalyze debates on the things that matter to me. And I'm really pleased. I feel really blessed that, I, that I'm able to use my tools to contribute in that way. I'm really pleased at, at being able to meet you in the morning and put my arms around you and hug you and go, yo, <laughs> and know that actually for a moment, but for a second, that, that our minds and, and, and the ends of our fingertips are connecting and, and, and welcoming each other and greeting each other. You know, there's, there's much joy to be had um, in simply knowing that we are alive. And if we are alive, there is hope. And if there is hope, there's a possibility for change. I, I yeah, it, it's, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to make out that I walk down the street every moment of every day just smiling and I'm, I'm joyful and I'm happy. There are many moments, and my family will tell you, there are many moments when I wake up and sometimes I go, I, I, the weight of the world is very heavy on my soul. There are many times when a child of mine may not be happy and I'm not happy. There's many times when a colleague at work is going through stress and I can see it and I'm not happy. But um but ultimately I I I see the world through the lens of of someone who believes in human potential and seeing potential in others and feeling potential in others. Um, I, I, I find that I find that joyous. So I suppose it's about networks as well as a community networks, networks of artists, networks of people that also want to make change happen yes. and be and be positive and yeah. optimistic. And I come into work every day in, in into an environment where the overwhelming majority of people that I bump into want to use art for change. That they want to be in a progressive environment that says, How do we treat each other? Let's treat each other better. How do we create the best art that creates the best questions? How do we laugh with each other even though we're working four jobs <laughs> and paid for half of one? How do we see look, you laugh. You laugh yeah. at, at yeah. the recognition of the truth yeah. of yeah. of of how hard you work. And that might seem counterintuitive, but it's not. Because truth makes us go, okay. Discoveries of truth make us go make us happy. Well, let's talk about that art then that's coming up at the Young Vic. Yeah. Um, so, for instance, uh, the season that's already been announced with uh, Jesus Hop the A Train and and the Convert. Mm -hmm. What made you say that these shows, these productions, are going to be in your first season? Um, well, the Convert for me was a modern classic. It was one of the most powerful plays I saw during my sojourn in America, um, and the idea of of looking at land, which is a really important issue. We, we transfer land in Britain actually to mean houses, right? And there is a housing crisis in our country. Affordability, access, there's a crisis. But really, we're calling it housing, but really it's land. 
Um, and so I'm really interested in looking at, at this play that, that looked at Zimbabwe. Uh, at, was it called Zimbabwe at that time, of course, and Shona land and Metabili land. I'm, I'm really interested in looking at when European missionaries arrived in and said, I need you to be this kind of being to succeed. I'm really interested in looking at what effects that had on the community, on the people. It's a brilliant play. And so I was really excited to, to want to explore that. And Jesus Hop the a Train, I think, is a modern classic as well. I just think it's, it was one of the most powerful plays I saw when I was a younger man. <laughs> and um, and uh, I remember seeing it at the Domar Warehouse and it influencing greatly my, my, uh, my, uh, my first play at the National Armenia's Kitchen. I, I, I was like this visceral, this, 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 this central question, which is, uh, do we all have good and do we all have bad and evil in us? Um, 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 what's the line between the two? And if, and if we do have evil in us, um, do we deserve, do we deserve forgiveness? Do we deserve redemption? Uh, I, I found that to be a brilliant question. That seems to chime with your identity that you were saying earlier about the power of humans to be positive and be good and be and be and be nice and kind to each other as well. Actually, and what, yeah. what is inside yeah. all of or, us? Or to recognise that we're all flawed, mm. and and to support others in their flaws, and some flaws are uh, are more dangerous than others. But 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 that play, Jesus of the A Train, um, it, it it attacks that question in a novel and original way, and so it, it felt important. It was the first. It was one of the first uh, programming ideas I had. I went, Jesus, hop the air train, doing it. <laughs> and I've been told, I've been assured that I won't be sacked if I announce the uh, rest of the uh, season. Because You've this, been assured, I've right? been assured. This when podcast does, when, is when going out go afterwards. Out? <laughs> I've been told that. I'm getting a thumbs up right now. Great. We Here we go. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so looking at the um, season, which yeah. um, is going to be announced as this podcast comes out, yeah. there's a combination, a marriage maybe, of very classic plays by yeah. very established dead yeah. uh, playwrights yeah. and um, some really exciting new work so for instance Death of a Salesman yeah. uh, you know Arthur Miller Blood Wedding Lorca people yeah. may know these plays and then combined with things like Bronx Gothic yeah. uh, and Tree and Faith you just talk to me about that season well, I, I mean Marianne Elliott wants to direct you know she wants to direct the phone book. I'm in, right? <laughs> and uh, and so uh, and so when she came and she said, "Listen, I want to do Death of a Salesman, and I want to do it through the lens of an African American family." I found that really interesting. I'm not necessarily always into, "Hey, let's do the black version of this," but I'm I, I I loved the notion of her wanting to investigate this particular story through that lens. And the actor Wendell Pierce, who'll be uh, playing Willie Loman, is a personal favorite of mine, and. Um, who's, of course, famous for the Wire-Baltimore connection. <laughs> um, um, and so that seemed really exciting to me. And it just, I thought that it would send out all the right signals that the best directors in the world not only came to work with David, but would come to work with me. And so I, 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 I was really pleased about that. And following that, of course, is Tree. And it's a piece uh, created by Idris Elba and I, and um, that's based on his Me Mandela um, soundtrack. He played Nelson Mandela, then went back to South Africa, recording an album, um, and that's going to be the basis of a kind of new kind of play, musical rave with music. <laughs> and and the idea that Idris and I can just jump in together and just kind of create something, and we want to try and create something really novel and something that has a really strong aesthetic, um, I, I, with with one of the 
one of the biggest movie stars in in the world right now, and 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 also an old friend of mine. <laughs> so it's like it's it's beautiful. You know everybody. Well, I, I don't know about all of that. <laughs> and of course, getting Yale to come and do um, Blood Wedding. Um, I, I love Lorca, and uh, and I think she's gonna do a fantastic job. Um, Marina Carr's gonna do the adaptation, and I think they're just they're 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 looking at Ted Hughes's and they're looking at Langston Hughes's and they're just making their own, <laughs> and it's like I'm so excited about it. And then finally, uh, well, actually not finally, but uh, on the main stage, um, Fairview, which I think was the most provocative play um, of of the last five years, um, written by Jackie Sibbles Jury, uh, an American playwright, um, and and to be able to bring a play that actually nearly every other theatre in London ran after. To be able to bring that to our main stages is making me really happy. And then, of course, finally, Bronx Gothic, which is a kind of piece of a kind of one-woman show that's a combination of, of kind of dance and theatre, um, just pushing at forms and, and boundaries. And um, I couldn't be more excited about, about those those pieces that are coming onto our main stage. And is it accidental that there's classic plays with, with new work, or is that a signature of yours? I, I, I'm always going to struggle with, uh, with with what is a signature of mine, right? Because I don't really know. And I'd be like, oh, yes, of course, that's exactly what I wanted to do. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know. I think I just respond to the work that is in front of me and the energy that I want to put out into the world. And then if there's a season of all new plays, that might just happen. If it's a season of all classics, that just might happen. I think I'm, I'm interested in in who the artists are that want to come and dance here and what are the plays and the messages that they want to explore um, while while being in this wonderful space. And what's interesting as well is that as well as artists and performers standing on a stage performing to an audience, you are diversifying the output of the Young Vic in terms of new media. So let's talk about that. Yeah, it's really important to me. Uh, you know, this season we're doing a VR, AR kind of mixed media experience called Draw Me Close where you'll come on and you'll put on VR headsets and there'll be an actor in the room with you and uh, and, and you'll experience a story of, of, of loss and of, and of love and of family. Um, and our job is to show that this belongs in a theatrical space. You don't have to sit at home and put the VR glasses on. That actually we can do it in a communal fashion. And um, and I'm I'm really excited about it. The 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 sketch, oh I said the sketch, but the the play that it's based on is really beautiful. And the animation, which is why I was speaking about sketch, which is kind of sketch form, is 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 really revealing and moving. And I, you, I take the VR headset off, and I just want to sit down for ten minutes and contemplate the meaning of life. Um, I'm, I'm really excited about that. And we're doing uh, a couple of other panel shows that we'll be filming called The Eight Club, where young men under 30 um, will get together and discuss for 30 minutes um, the things that matter to them as young men. Toxic masculinity, how do I help? Who am I? Mental health in my, in my relationships. That these young men are now saying, in this era of me too which is absolutely right but I think I'm losing myself a little and I don't quite know who I am and, and I need to be in a community to discuss it and I theatre is like our church man you come together and you, and, you, and you jam and you talk and you hear and you vibe and then you leave stronger and I think um, the eight club's going to be really fun in that way to hear these young voices discuss things that really matter to them and and it may seem counterintuitive. Why are we creating male spaces at a time of female empowerment? But I think what I learned from, from the Trump experience, from the post-reconstruction experience of, of living in America from 2014 on up until Trump um, came to power, was um, I, 
often we progressives we think we have won the argument when we have only really won the silence and then there is a backlash because nobody can be silent forever and we are living in the time of the backlash and so it's really important to me to actually speak allow young men to feel that they can have purchase on um, on the world that is happening around them and the things that are happening around them. And living in that time of backlash, is that the reason why you also commissioned My England? Yeah, totally. Um, I, I came back to a country that, um, that, that I felt was in an, amid an identity crisis, not knowing who it is, not knowing who it will be. And so commissioning these, these 12 to 14 films, or short monologues, and filming them across the country uh, with, with playwrights from the 12 regions of England. Um, you know, I, I just saw a couple of the, of the cuts and uh, it's really exciting, really, you know, leading playwrights, new playwrights, diverse playwrights, all talking about what England means to them. Um, I, I'm, I'm very pleased with, with how, that, how those voices are emerging through that medium. And is that to reclaim notions of patriotism and nationalism away from the far right then? Yeah, I, I think the, the, the far right have weaponized nationalism. They've, they've, they've weaponized patriotism and they've weaponized English identity. And, and yeah, oh man, it's not yours. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not yours alone. Yeah. It's ours too. And, um, and, and, and so, yeah, totally. Um, let's, well, I think we need to do it particularly after Brexit, we're going to need to redefine who we are in very clear fashions. And I've heard you speak before that we now live in the slash economy, that you can say, I am a writer slash director, I'm a performer slash performance artist. Mm. Um, is the Young Vic then, under your um, premiership, going to be a, be a home for the, for the slash economy and the slash artist? I, I love the word premiership. <laughs> <laughs> Not in my reign, premiership. <laughs> under your, um, I mean, I think David rather beautifully created a director's theatre, and, um, and I stand on the shoulders of that. Um, I, I think we all bring the thing that we are to, the, to, to our environments, and David, of course, was a writer. Um, you know, I, I I would describe myself as a as a slash hyphenate artist, and I and, and there's a saying, be the person that you most needed when you were young. And and the person I most needed when I was young was someone who would bring me into an establishment and say, you can be your full self, not just your musician self, not just your actor self, not just your writer self, not just your director self, but actually be your full self. And I want to create an environment where 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 slash artists can be their full self. And why is there a hesitancy then for that to be embraced more, more widely? Why people seem to think that they have to take a singular approach to their, to I, their work? I, I think it was very 20th century and I think the 21st century and AI is teaching us actually that, that, that that's an outmoded way of thinking. No one's going to have a job for life. Everyone is going to have to do two or three careers. Is going to have to resequence um, their life. They're going to have to maybe do education up until 30 and then do your first career and then maybe go back into learning for five years or for three years and then start your second career and then maybe finish that when you're 70 and not 65. We're all going to have to resequence ourselves. And I think that the slash artist has already done that and, and, and can contribute to, to, to really clear thinking on that. And, and, and it wasn't the way of the 20th century, but it is the way of the 21st. 
And Kwame, we've spoken, of, well, you've spoken about your past in previous interviews, and today we've spoken about the present. Let's look at the future. Mm. Let's say it's 2040 and somebody's updating the Young Vic Wikipedia page and they're talking about the Kwame Kwame years. Yeah. Um, what does success look like to you? It's really interesting, isn't it? Because I don't know yet. Um, I, I think it might be too early for me to, to know what that looks like. Here's what I think today. Um, I, I think that um, that we have to... What we don't want theatre to do is go the way of newspapers or that are struggling um, to hang on in a world that is, that is digitalised and, um, and, and that we're getting multi -feed, multiple feeds. Um, I, I, our model at the moment, I think, is very 19th century. We create a play takes three or four years if it's a new play and then we put the play on on a off-broadway or subsidized in, in london environment and then if it does really well and gets five stars reviews and sells out um we then bounce it to the west end and if it bounce does really well in the west end then we send it to broadway and then if it does really well on broadway we then send it on a tour around the world and then you know this one play has had like an eight-year cycle and um, we're living in a world now where I pick up my phone and I get 27 feeds at the same time. I, you know, I think there is a way in which theatre is going to have to adapt to the 21st and the 22nd century and, 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 and change the paradigm. Not live and not create or expect the, 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 the model of the 19th century to work for us now. Um, and, so, and I think that's right across the board from forms and we've always been good at challenging forms, but to distribution. For me, of course I want plays in the West End. Of course I want plays on Broadway that we've produced. But that's not, that's not the be-all and end-all for me. Um, you know, having, uh, having work performed by communities across the world, having work that transfers actually to Regent's Park or Hyde Park, um, where everyone's involved as opposed to necessarily going into the Garrick. I mean, I want to go into the Garrick. I want to do all of that stuff. But I, I, want to, I know for me, I am, I'm busy re-engineering the, the thing that I think I have signed up for. That is not to be uh, the new artistic director who just does things in a slightly newer way than the previous artistic director. Um, I believe in, I, I believe in, in, sometimes in throwing the table up in the air and saying, not that you are corrupt, but saying, how are we going to do things differently? So that diversification or plurality of output, that's what sort of seems to energise you or, or keep you going, keep you motivated. Yeah, yeah. I don't. And again, it, it's rooted, right, in being a slash artist, right? It's, it's, it's rooted in, in that, I, in, in that I, 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 I have delved in multiple disciplines and, and my experience in those disciplines um, kind of open up other avenues in new disciplines and new new learnings in, in, in new disciplines and so the idea of of not just following what quintessentially is just a a, a capitalistic um or you know kind of trajectory for art that you kind of commodify it and then you sell it to the highest bidder and and success is when it's in a commercial environment so that their investors can get returns. That's great. And again, I love it and I want that, but it's not the only measure of success for me. 
well, actor slash director slash performer slash artistic director slash leader, Kwame Kweoma, I wish you many, many successful, happy, joyous, optimistic years at the helm of the Young Vic. Thank you for coming. Well, bless you. And coming into work and seeing you and seeing <laughs> your joy and your smiling face is a wonderful thing to behold. Thank you for this interview. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Off Book by The Young Vic. If you'd like to hear more conversations with some of the most exciting people in theatre, subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes.